Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. This is part one of our conversation with Akwasi Frimpong, who in 2018 became the first black male Olympian to compete in skeleton and only the second athlete ever to represent Ghana in the Winter Games. Akwasi was born in Ghana, but moved to the Netherlands when he was eight years old. It was there that he started sprinting, becoming a junior national champion in the 200 meters and just missing the 2012 Olympics. He switched to bobsled and just missed the 2014 Olympics. But with Skeleton, the third time was the charm and Akwasi realized his Olympic dream. His goal was to medal in this year's Olympics in Beijing, but a positive COVID test sidelined him for the final three qualifying races, causing him to miss the Olympic cut. But at age 35, Akwasi says he's in the best shape of his life and has moved his focus to the 2026 Olympics in Italy to achieve his goal of becoming the first athlete born in Africa to medal in the Winter Games. Hey, Akwasi, how are you? Where are you? I'm back in Salt Lake City. I just had a, a meeting. So yeah, I'm back in Utah. Basically, I travel around a lot, obviously, but uh, currently in Utah. So you've lived in Utah since you moved there for college? Yes, that's correct. I go back to Ghana a lot and to the Netherlands, but mainly what, where I really call home right now, where I pay the mortgage and where, and where I train mostly is in Utah. <laughs> Do you have, you have family both in Ghana and in the Netherlands? Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So I was born in Ghana till I was eight. I just got done speaking to my grandmother, who's actually in the movie just five minutes ago as I was in the car. Um, so yeah, so I do have family still in Ghana and my mom, my dad are basically in the Netherlands. My brother and sister are in Europe in the Netherlands, basically my brother in Belgium, but you know, it's just like a couple hours drive. He just moved on there, but it's still the same. And obviously in Ghana with my grandmother and, and, and nephews and nieces and stuff. You have a lot of brothers and siblings, right? Uh, no, actually, so I have an older brother and younger sister. I'm the middle child, but uh, my grandma took care of like my brother and I, and uh, we had eight cousins. So ah. she took care of uh, everybody's everybody's baby. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I know you obviously have this really interesting backstory, and and you were in a, a very tiny house with all those kids. But as a kid, it was probably a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, you know, being able to have that many people just around my grandmother, you know, for Christmas day, playing around, um, hitting each other here and there and, uh, chasing each other. It's fun to be able to have a big family. I mean, for my grandmother, it was probably hell as far as like, well, well, probably not. She loved all of us, but she's the one that was responsible for our health, responsible for us eating, responsible for us trying to go to school. So she's the real MVP. Did you play sports at that young age in Ghana or was it more just like tag and, and chasing your siblings and cousins around? Exactly. Tag and chase. And I, I, organized sports is not really a thing in Ghana and definitely not at that age. So I, I didn't get really into showing my talents or showing my sports talent until I got to the Netherlands, where they have more of organized, as I call it, organized sports with clubs and different things like that. I know this is going to be a little bit of jumping around, but so you, you started in, in Ghana with no organized sports. And in 2018, you were the first black male Olympian to participate in skeleton, only the second athlete ever to represent Ghana in the winter games, but you will not be in Beijing in two weeks. This was a very unfortunate story. And I know you've told it a million times, but can you just tell us briefly what happened here? Absolutely, Lindsay. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the show. It's an honor. Of course. And uh, yeah, the story is heartbreaking and it's devastating for anybody who has, you know, worked his or her whole life for anything. It doesn't matter if sport can be anything, right? And in my case, training for my second Olympics, 
I was on pace to qualify. I had a really tough season. Obviously, leading into the season, it was it was very hard to score all the points that I needed. And we finally were able to get in form, get in shape, figure out things out in my last three races where I did really well in Lake Plus, New York. So it bumped me from 72 in the world to 62 in the world within basically one weekend. So we were on pace to qualify to be in the top six in the world. And obviously being in the top 60 is those other requirements, but the prerequisite is top 60. So I was 63rd in the world ranking and pushing really hard in for my last three races in Germany. This was after Christmas. So I got in contact with somebody that had a mild cold on December 25th in, I think it was the 25th, uh, around that time in Germany. And the person tested negative the first two days and the third day tested positive for a PCR. And so I went in to test as well. But this was leading into my races and I wasn't able to participate. So which was uh, yeah, devastating of something that I've been working so hard for all season, putting money, energy and time into it. It was very hard. Yeah. So basically testing positive for COVID meant that you weren't able to participate in those last three races to boost your ranking further to qualify for the Olympics. Absolutely. Yep. So there's so many races that I counted. If you have some bad races at the beginning of the season, you can make it up because there's only so many that they count on the world ranking. And uh, like I said, I was jumping up really high. I was doing well. I was on pace. And unfortunately, my dream got dashed into pieces. And there was no chance for like a provisional where countries get to select their people that didn't work out here, huh? No, really. I'm the only one to represent uh, the kind of African skeleton, 1.4 billion people, and the only one from Ghana. So it wasn't like, you know, somebody else could jump up for me or for the country. That's unfortunate when you're a small nation, when you're a small country, you don't have that leverage or that luxury. Well, it is very unfortunate. This COVID thing has been messing with, with everybody from canceling holidays to canceling people's shot at the Olympics as well. It's been so crazy. I um, mean, you know, you're definitely right. Like I said, it's, it hasn't only affected athletes, it has affected mothers, fathers, uh, teachers, musicians, your own job as a journalist, it has mm-hmm. affected everybody. COVID does not discriminate as far as I know, and it's a wreck train. And, and I, I pray that we'll, we'll get over it all together because that's the most important thing that we'll work together to get over it. Yeah. Your story, though, is nevertheless absolutely amazing. And I do want to talk about how you went from Ghana on the continent of Africa, where there's not a lot of ice sports, to becoming a skeleton, a top-level skeleton racer. So we talked about how you moved to the Netherlands when you were eight And I did read up a little bit on you. You didn't start running until you were about 15 years old, but you became a junior champion very quickly, right? I believe in the 200 meters. Yes. Within 18 months, as I was recruiting track and field, I became the Dutch junior champion at 200 meter sprints. What inspired you to want to run? Actually, um, my coach, Sammy Monsels, uh, recruited me when I was about 15 years old. He did that at a junior high school competition. We have what we call, it's like a PE day, but more for people to get introduced to track and field. Like it can be javelin, jumping, sprinting, all that type of stuff. So he always comes and visits and sits like in the stands and watches and recruits and helps around. And as I took the baton from my team in the relay, we were like 20, 30 meters behind. I made up that gap and kind of gained like about another 10 meters and won that race and he was there and he recruited me, but I never really went to his club because I thought running was the punishment of any other sports, right? If, you, uh, <laughs> if you're late at a soccer, because I love soccer, I always want to be a soccer player as, uh, as being born in Ghana and being raised in Europe, you know, soccer is a big deal. And so um, I always thought that, you know, soccer, when you were late, you have to do extra laps around that 400 meters uh, grass because that was a punishment. So I was never really into it, but I was discovered 
and I met him later, a couple months later. And that kind of, he talked to me about it again, but what really inspired me to go and run is because there was a kid, his name is Joel. He lived in the flat, the apartment where we lived in the Netherlands. And he one time had won uh, a medal and uh, he was showing off this medal, like, oh, he's a fast runner. He's won this medal and kind of showing off. And I just wanted to know what it feels like to be a winner. I want to know what it feels like to be Joel. I never had any trophy in my, my closet or any medals in my closet. So I just wanted to have something like that. And that's the reason why I joined. And like I said, with, with hard work, with discipline, with motivation, and with the great mentor as Coach Sami, I was able to do something that I never thought I would be able to do, and that's to win a championship. So you obviously, though, if you went from no organized running training to being a junior national champion in 18 months, you obviously had some natural innate talent on the track. Were you fast right away when you started training for real? Were you right away beating people? Actually, I remember that one time when he recruited me, he talked to me a couple months later when I saw him at the post office. Long story, I'll keep it short. But I, I saw him training other athletes and as they were running, they were going so fast. My heart was just being like, oh my gosh, like that's really fast. But what really struck me is that when I did join his club a couple months later, I beat those guys that I saw going fast. And I was like, hey, this can be fun. And so basically with his training, with, like you said, natural ability, but definitely with, with good coaching, I was able to learn the right technique to be able to move faster. And I train every day and I train hard in the dark and when nobody was there watching me. And I remember that my first competition as a track and field athlete was the 60 meters indoor Dutch championship. And I missed the finals by one hundredth of a second, one one hundredth of a second. And it happened again that same summer on the 100 and 200 meters. I missed it again because of that. And that's when I walked up to Coach Semi. And I said, hey, coach, I want to know, I want to be a winner. I want to win gold. I want to win a championship. And he taught me about self-discipline, the importance of self-discipline. And I think that's definitely something that really helped me to show up on time and practice, to show up even when I didn't want to, to learn the technique, to listen to him. And like I said, having a natural ability and talent is one thing, but also to be able to be willing to be coached and to learn is also another thing as well. I think it's a combination of uh, a lot of great things that come together to be able to execute something. What made you want to go to college in the U.S. to run as opposed to staying in the Netherlands? In the Netherlands, my, uh, my, my parents, uh, my mom brought me to the Netherlands, obviously, when I was eight years old in 1995. And the reason was to give me and my brother a better future, to be able to go to school and things like that. So she had two, three jobs, found a place to live and kept her promise. She left in 1989-ish when I was two, three years old. And in 1995, when I was about eight years old, she came back for us and we went with her. So... It was for a better future. And we are grateful that she did that for us because it has given us a lot of things. But to get back to your question, what, what made me wanted to run? Is that what you said? What made you want to come to college in the U.S. Oh, as opposed to oh, staying to the and U- running for the yeah. Netherlands? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So in the Netherlands, as we went to the Netherlands for a better future, we were 13 years illegal immigrants. We couldn't go to school. We were not allowed to have a job to help my mom, you know, as she was paying a lot of lawyers to keep us in the country. So we went out, I wasn't able to show my God-given talents. When I was 17 years old and I became Dutch junior champion at 200 meters, the Dutch national team asked me to represent the Netherlands at an international competition on the 100 meters, 200 meters, and the 4 by 100 meter relay team. I lied to them at that moment that they asked me if I, you know, if I had passport and everything like that because they wanted to take me. And I told them like, oh, my mom has lost my passport, you know, the same thing I said in, in school when we were going to a school retreats in Spain and I didn't, I wasn't able to go. I always lie like, oh, because you are always seen as uh, 
illegal immigrant, you are always seen as like a criminal. People laugh at you, like the way you're kind of portrayed. So basically 13 years illegal in the Netherlands, couldn't show my God-given talents. And I went to the Johan Kraft School, a famous uh, soccer player, former soccer player school, where you can combine sports and studies. And, you know, I talked to one of the directors and I said, I really want to show my God-given talents as a sprinter. Like I can go nowhere. Like I'm the team captain of the team, but anytime they go to camps in Brazil or different places, I have to stay behind. I have to go wave them up at the airport where I'm the team captain and, and I can't go anywhere. And I really want to show what I got. And that's why they started to put my profile together, send it to different schools and help me send it to different colleges in America. So I had a scholarship from Michigan, Monroe, Arizona, Sun Devils, South Dakota, Utah Valley University. And UVU gave me the best scholarship as far as financial support and education was an important thing for me and for my family. So I that. And that's what brought me to the U.S. to be able to follow through with my dream of becoming an Olympian and follow through with my God-given talents as, a, as an athlete, as a runner, and obviously to be able to have an education as well. Did you end up getting your Dutch citizenship? Yeah. So in 2007, I wrote to different schools and uh, the, the schools all got back to me around that same year. In I didn't have anything yet. I was still waiting for you know, all the lawyers' court meetings we had to go to. And in 2007, after 13 years, the Netherlands finally admitted that they had made mistakes. And so I received what you call like a, a Dutch residency permit, like a green card, whatever. And then uh, I still didn't have a passport yet. So then the, after I wrote to the schools and everything like that, and I got my passport, I decided to still go to the U.S. And I felt like everything happens for a reason. And it was, I don't know, I believe in God. And I don't know if that's the, that was the right direction for me or not. But I believe that everything happens for a reason. And, and for me, that reason was to come here and follow through with my dream and uh, meet my family, my wife and all these different things. So, yeah. So in college, you also ran the 100, the 200, the four by 100. So you definitely proved your running chops here, but, and then you graduated in 2013, you got to think a business degree and, uh, that coming to Utah was actually how you ended up getting into bobsled, correct? With the Dutch bobsled team. So it's funny, you left the Netherlands, came to the U S and then hooked back up with the Dutch sledding team. How did that happen? <laughs> so after I missed, uh, I was training for the Olympic game. My dream was always to be a sprinter. So my goal was the 2012 London Summer Olympic Games. And I was part of the Netherlands pre-Olympic team. So I was part of the team that was training and getting ready for the Olympic Games. You still had to make like the final team, just like every Olympic team. And because of an injury in college and, and, and with running, I missed the 2012 Olympics with the Netherlands team. And so what actually really happened is that they were in the Netherlands where we were competing and they recruited me actually there. But when they came here in the U.S. in Park City, Utah, is when I was really introduced to the sport. And for the first time, hopped in the sled going, you know, 90 miles per hour with my head as the brakeman in the back with my head. Just like, you know, just like I was going to get like, I don't know, man, like my brain was just going to be shut off or something like that. And, and, and my job was to break the sled as quick as possible when we land or basically when we get to the bottom. And to make sure nobody dies, and I did a good job, nobody died. So, <laughs> But that's how I got introduced from missing the 2012 Olympics to getting recruited by the Netherlands team because of my speed as a sprinter, because I wasn't a pilot then. My focus was just to push and help get the sled down as quick as possible on the first 50 meters. And so that's how I got hooked up with the Netherlands team. When you are a sprinter and you, uh, obviously a lot of sprinters, a lot of power athletes do move into bobsled. Is it a direct like one-to-one -one translation where you can generate power on the track? So it means you can also generate power behind a sled. 
but not exactly it helps it helps a lot right and because you also have other athletes coming from football background in skeleton we have a girl from like ballet there's a lot of different things that can translate but definitely sprinting is a huge important part in strength because the box is like 600 pounds and you know you got to push it with a team but you got to have a lot of strength and speed you know got to be able to move your legs quickly but there's a lot of technique in box i think box would translate a little bit better than skeleton because in bobsled, you still have to bend down, but not as much as skeleton. So you still need the technique. You need the time. You need to learn. And so it helps, absolutely. But it still takes some time to learn the technique of uh, being able to push a sled as quick as possible it's that heavy. And then be able to get in it with a bunch of other dudes. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, that, that whole technique of getting in as quick as possible and tucking your head like in the bat top that's basically like you just sit in the bat top with four guys yeah going down the hill <laughs> at like 100 miles an hour so how did you go from bobsled to skeleton so after i missed the i missed the olympic games again uh, in 2014 for the sochi uh, russia olympic games where i was trained with the netherlands to qualify for and the way it works with the olympic quota is that not every there's only so many spots for nations, countries, et cetera, et cetera. So in the Netherlands team, we had two pilots, Evo De Bruyne and Edwin von Kalker. And Edwin von Kalker was more experienced. He was more like the A team and Evo was like the B team, which I was kind of part of, but they could still both qualify. And they both did qualify on the international level, but there's a national standard as well with some of these nations that they won't send you if you don't have a certain national standard. That's way much higher than the national standard. So Evo, uh, didn't, we didn't qualify two sleds on the national standard, only one sled. So due to that, I didn't make the Olympic Games. I became a second alternate for the Olympic Games. If somebody did get injured as a brakeman to hop in on the plane and go to uh, Russia, that never happened, which is a good thing because we don't want anybody to get injured and get the best guys to represent our country. So from there, I graduated in 2013 with college left the bobsled well because I was like, hey, I want to come back to the U. I was in Europe. I want to come back to the U.S. I want to be able to pay for the apartment where I live, you know, and I want to be able to get married and save money and all that kind of stuff. So I came back here and tried to find a job. And that's why I got into the vacuum job, which is not part of my movie, but it's a huge part of my story is that I started selling Kirby vacuum door to door. <laughs> and those annoying guys that never leave your house. Um, uh, and and uh, in February 20. In 2014, I sold like uh, 18 Kirby vacuums in like 15 days and the month after 32 of them in 18 days. And they go for like a $3,000 a pop. But I was doing that for a while and then had my own franchise, had about 30 guys working for me, uh, being very successful um, in 2015, almost made a million dollars in gross sales with my office. And so I was, I was going away from being a broke athlete to become a successful businessman and, and, and all that kind of stuff, be able to pay for my bills. And, but then in July or so 2015, my wife and I came from the gym because we like to work out together. She was a college student and, a, and a, she was a long jumper for BYU, Brigham Young University, NCAA. So we were both in sports. But she noticed that something was bothering me. And she's like, hey, what's going on? I was like, you know, I really want to go to Olympics one more time. I really want to try one more time. I know I missed it two times, but it's like, it's like my bucket list. I have to make it happen. I have to get it done. And as beautiful as she is, she looked at me and she said, you know, I don't want you to be 99 years old and still be mm -hmm. whining about your Olympic dream. <laughs> and then meanwhile, I was talking to the same coach who recruited me for Boston for the Netherlands, who told me about skeleton and recruited me to do skeleton. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that, you know, already in the skinny tight pants, you know, all that kind of stuff with a sled. I was like, oh, you know, Boston is already like crazy, but at least it's like translate really well, camaraderie, manly, whatever. Right. 
and then skeleton. Oh my gosh, that's with your brain going head first. But yeah, I gave it a shot. And instead of competing for the Netherlands, I wanted to do something back in my country, Ghana. I was then 31 years old, I think, 30, 31. And I decided to, if I'm going to go, I want to go all out and be impactful and, and really do something to leave a legacy behind. And that's how I got on my, on my belly, on a sled, going head first and thinking that literally I was going to die. <laughs> what was that? I mean, for those of us that have never been on a skeleton and I personally have no desire to try, I've already had seven concussions from playing ice hockey. Oh I think my gosh. That's the oh, limit for oh me. My, my four front teeth are fake. No skeleton oh. for Lindsay. But what is that like going that? I mean, how many, first of all, how many miles an hour do you end up going? Uh, anywhere between 70 and 90, depending okay. on the track. So 70 and 90 miles an hour on your belly on this tiny little sled head first. What is it actually, what was it like the first time you did it? Yeah. First of all, we do wear well helmets, luckily, but we are only about 10 inches or so from the ice. So we are very close to the ice. And to describe how skeleton feels, first of all, it's like, it's like having five of your best friends sit on top of you. That's the type of G force we feel like five and six G's like an airplane. So it's a lot of force that you feel in your neck, in your back, et cetera. But it's fun. It's, it's a lot of adrenaline rush. But the first time going down, literally, you know, it's almost like you want to just pee in your pants. It's like your coffin is at the finish. You really think you're going to die. Like literally no joke. It's super scary going that fast. And also on the, on the sled where you're not covered like in a bobsled and you don't really have a lot of like grip because you are in a saddle, like holding on almost nothing and just using your, your shoulders and knees to steer down almost a mile long. Just think about driving a car, but this time on ice fast and ready to hit your head in concrete walls and, and ice walls and breaking bones. And obviously you name it, you've had that in ice hockey, right? Crazy things will happen, but a, a little bit faster, 10 times as fast. Yeah. But it's like driving a car, but there's no car. It's just you. So yes. Driving a car you, without any protection. So when you say there's all these G forces pushing down on you, does it then feel, do you feel like you're stuck to the sled or do you feel like you're flying off the sled? When you crash, you're flying off the sled, but typically <laughs> you are intact with the sled. You are like like a glue on the walls. But like I said, if you don't do the proper steer, if you do the steer too early, too, too soon, too late, the timing is off, uh, bad things can happen. So how it's, a moment, you, it's like just a split of a second. You mentioned before that in the bobsled, you're pushing and you're a little bit more upright. And the skeleton, the sled is obviously much lower to the ground. So you have to bend down a lot further in that 50 meter or so sprint to get the thing moving. How much of a learning curve was there in the, with the sprint technique for the skeleton? Still learning it after six years. I'm probably one of the fastest on, in the sports when it comes to like, if we have to measure a hundred meters time, or even a 30 meters time upright sprint, or even like we go lower, obviously when we start and then we go upright, but I'm fast. I consider myself to be one of the fastest guys when we just have to run, but not per se the fastest guy when it comes to pushing the sled, because there's so much technique, even the guy that's slower than you might out technique you, you know, because Yes, there's a similarity as far as like speed, movement, power, explosiveness, blah, blah, blah. But there's still the learning curve was so much. It's so much more than I did in Bob. In Bob's, I was able to catch on very quickly, uh, so much quicker than Skeleton. I'm still learning a lot. And that's the fun part of it. Like you, there's still so much to learn that you can only get better. What's the hardest thing about running bent over uh running bent over that you you first you can't see much mm. and you're holding on to something that's about 70 pounds and if you don't have the right strides for example the sled might be too close to you or too far away from you so you're not in the right position to actually really 
push potentially like how fast you can push the fact that you're holding one hand and pushing basically just with one hand, you know, moving it around back in the day, they used to do two hands and you only using your legs. But now I think in 2000, they figure out the Canadian, how to push a little bit faster, just with one hand on the sled and pumping, you know, one arm. So there's just so much thinking involved and to get off the blocks, to push off the blocks, the position to look, where to put your hips, where to put your, like your butt, you don't want your butt too high or too low. It's confusing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of the toughest things I've ever learned. It's just doing the sport of scout and also learning how to push the sled. And like I said, it's getting better. And once you, once you learn the technique, as I've been, as after six years, you know, in Lake Plas, in one of my competitions, I finally figured out what the Russian team was teaching me when I was having camps with them. It kind of finally clicked. And then I was pushing two tenths faster just because of a technique that I was able to discover, right? <laughs> so... Wait, once you get onto the sled, I was reading that you steer by shifting your hips and your knees, but that shifting your hips and knees can also slow you down. So how do you balance the movement with the need to steer? And honestly, when you're going that fast, I mean, you're going to get from the top to the bottom. How important is steering anyway? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, because you, you don't want to have too many bruises and cuts and, and, and stuff. But a second of all, you want to go as quick as possible to win a race. So that's the reason why proper steering is important and, and safety, the most important thing. But yeah, once you dive on the sled, you know, you can use your whole body to steer a sled, right? But you want to use as minimum as possible. You want to be as quiet as possible in the sled. You want to do as less steering as possible because you're going to cut a lot of ice. You want to cut as least ice as possible. So basically, most athletes uh, use the combination of their knees and shoulders. And it's opposite knee with opposite shoulder. It's like doing a torque on the sled. You kind of are like moving it like this way. Like if my right shoulder is going in the sled, then my left knee is going in the sled. And so that's how most athletes do. Some only use just shoulders. But even when I'm just using shoulders, my knee is going to move as well. And some people use just knee. And But if you want to make like a certain turn because it's dangerous or it's really hard to make that turn with your knee and shoulders, then you use like a toe or foot, you know, to really turn the sled as quickly as possible. So you can use almost everything. We even use our eyes. Sometimes when you're just sliding, you lie on it. When you just look left or look up, the sled is moving that direction. So it can be as little movement or as much movement as you want. And the person who does the least actually cuts less ice and, and slides the fastest. Is there a way to practice this away from the sled, like in the gym? Can you duplicate this or do you have to practice it on the sled on the ice? With skeleton and bobsled, they do have some kind of a, in the summer, some athletes, they don't really do it much. I think like they can go on the track itself when there's no ice. But for us, the skeleton is really how we can do that. So the push we can off ice, but it's the steering, not really. Uh, there still hasn't been, unless the Germans have discovered a machine we don't know about, right? Uh, a simulator. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they have, right? A simulator or something like that. But what you can practice is, for example, having your actual sled in your house, for example, looking at what we call a POV, point of view of, of a track, for example, where somebody has put a GoPro in front of their helmet and they are sliding on that track. You can actually align your sled. We do that a lot. And we actually steer with it, right? As we are like memorizing and basically visualizing. So you go on your sled and you mimic the steers while you're actually not sliding, but you can see somebody sliding for you basically. So that's how we practice at home. But also when we don't use our sled, we call something called mind runs. 
Sometimes you see boxers scouting athletes before they are coming. They are making like these weird movements. Like you're like, what the hell? Where are you going? Like when you're sliding, you never do that. You're like sliding is like really light, but we kind of make movements like it's the track. And we close our eyes and we are visualizing uh, the track and the steers, and it's called mind runs. So mind runs or POV. Actually, looking at a video, and you know, I'm going with that. That's cool. This concludes part one of our conversation with Aquasi Frimpong. Be sure to check out part two and follow Aquasi on Instagram at, at AquasiFrimpong86. You can also visit his website, www.frimpong.com, where you can view the newly released short film about his life, Black Ice, produced by his sponsor, On Running. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production. Podcast.